from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Galvo Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, rebuilding Puerto Rico's power grid, how the circular economy helps the developing world, will resilience be the new normal, and more on the year ahead from some of our friends. We're ringing in the new this week on 350. It's January 5th, 2018. Oh my God, how did we get to 2018? Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350, the first of a brand new year. And joining me as always is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Happy New Year, Heather. Happy New Year, Joel. I'm happy that there is a brand new number at the end of my checks. Yeah, I think a lot of people are. I think 2017 was one of those years you don't mind seeing in the rearview mirror. Not just for you know, political reasons. It was just just a complicated year in lots of ways, natural disasters and um, politics. And uh, I don't know what, you know, I can't, can't even, I can barely name a good movie (laughs) from the year. Um, That's not true. The the Greatest Showman. You got to go see it, Joel. Excellent movie. Yep. Terrific soundtrack. Excellent movie. And Hugh Jackman. Can't go wrong with Hugh Jackman. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see the post because I'm a big, you know, any, any journalism, Political, you know, 60s, 70s movie is is right right down the lane for me. So I'll be checking that out. But um, it's January, and January is always an exciting month for us at Green Biz. Um, uh, first of all, we've got our 11th annual State of Green Business report coming out, and we're going to start um, next week to preview some of that and talk about the State of Green Business um, and some of the predictions we've made over the past few years and how well we did and didn't do in some cases. So we are, as you are listening to this, we are crossing our T's and dotting our I's and, and all that good stuff and putting the finishing touches on this report with the great help of Danny Kelly, our creative director, and our colleagues at TrueCost over in the UK. And then, of course, we're getting ready for the big show in Phoenix in February. Yep. Are you excited? I'm excited because it's a lot warmer in Phoenix than it is here in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I, have to, I just have to – the first year we did uh, the state, the Green Biz uh, event in Phoenix, I think about six years ago now, um, and we had been doing it uh, all over the – mostly northern territories, you know, in, in Minneapolis and Chicago and New York and Washington – and San Francisco. And the year we moved to Phoenix was the year of the polar vortex. If you remember that, that was, I'm sure you do, but that was when the northern and eastern half of the country just went into a serious deep freeze. And here we are having this event in Phoenix, Arizona, where it was 86 degrees and people got off the plane, and I swear we could have talked gibberish for three days, and people would have been weepy happy, but they were just <laughs> so excited to be there. Uh, and oh yeah, and it was a good conference. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I've got several <laughs> sessions I'm really excited about. I'm, I always learn a tremendous amount in, in uh, at the event, and it's 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 actually 
the, the, the discipline that we need to exercise is what do I cover first? It's always just such a, uh, amazing, uh, brain brain dump if you will of, of knowledge might <laughs> come out feeling like my head is huge <laughs> just because it's so cramped full of great ideas and stuff that I want to follow up on so I'm, I'm eagerly not just because of the weather eagerly looking forward to being there and and um, listening and learning and and just it's just a wonderful event I love starting the year that way I do too and and we've got some great people coming I mean I've got Paul Hawken and Bill McDonough separately on stage on the first day. Um, I mean, that's a lot of firepower on day one, and not to mention the, you know, 27 other things going on that day. Um, and it's going to be like that. It's just going to be this great parade of, of, of people and ideas and sort of looking at where a lot of this stuff is going. And, you know, some of the new themes, I'm excited. You know, I'm not, no one will ever accuse me of being a money or finance person. But I'm really excited about the finance track that we added this year, um, mostly because I want to learn about it. And, you know, we've been writing about it a little bit, and there'll be a, a, some good stuff about that in the State of Green Business Report, one of the trends. We'll talk about that later. But the program is just, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm obviously biased, but it, it just seems to get better and better every year. Yep. Yep. I'm, I'm really excited about it. So what do we got hanging out, hanging out for this week? What are we going to well, focus on? Let's... Check it out and then we can review. Hello, this is John Elkington. When Joel Makawa of Greenbiz asks for your forecast for the new year, it's a bit like entering the examination hall when you're a teenager. And my problem in exams was that I often answered questions I wanted to answer, rather than the ones the examiners had actually said. So that in that spirit, I'm going to be general here, not specific. And in general, I expect an insane acceleration in our agenda by the early 2020s, all in the context of continuing, indeed intensifying, political turmoil. As I've written in Greenbiz this year, I believe we've entered one of those U-bends of history, which come along perhaps once in a lifetime. And I'll be looking to both Greenbiz and Verge for guidance on how we best navigate this wildly disrupted new normal. Happy New Year to you all, and remember, it's in times of the greatest change that leadership really counts. So that was our good friend John Elkington. It's the uh, continuing the series we started in the last episode of 2017, where we've asked some of our good friends to let us know uh, what they're thinking about, uh, what some of their challenges are, what are some of the uh, must-dos for them in 2018. We'll hear several others this week and uh, a few more next week. Um, but uh, speaking of our friends on the other side of the pond, James Murray uh, wrote a piece called How to Avoid the Climate Apocalypse in 2018. And I don't think he was talking about another Harvey or Maria or Irma. Um, this is really about how do we just keep things on track from a policy and business strategy perspective, particularly in the age of the two-degree goal and Donald Trump, sort of two ends of a spectrum. Right. This this was one of those pieces I started reading it and I, 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 I halfway through I thought, ooh, 
I'm like really depressed. <laughs> like it just, you know, it starts out with sort of the laying it, laying it out there, right? Things are tough. Things are, are seemingly impossible. And he, he, he discusses the sort of, you know, what people say out in public and what people say behind closed doors. But I walked away, I, I ended the piece feeling like there are so many things that we turned the corner in on in 2017. Like 2017, yeah, I, I want that as far in the rearview mirror as possible. But what that the, the last year has been good for is getting everyone recharged and refocused on the practical arguments for climate action. Um, and the, the thing that I feel like is in my heart was one of the big, and you mentioned finance before, the fact that the investment community is really coming down hard uh, on the stranded assets, right, and, and on the, the companies that continue to invest in fossil fuels, that to me was like the most, the thing I walk away feeling the best about um, from the last 12 months. And, and James gets into that in this, in this piece. It is sort of, he ends it on, a, on an up note uh, uh, on like, look, watch this space sort of thing. So um, I, I, I highly recommend the article just because it, it'll get you angry and bummed out, but also fired up. And that's kind of, I think, our job here, uh, you know, as as journalists covering this space, it's to be to be real, to not sugarcoat things, um, but to be inspirational in the, in the sense of shining a light on a lot of the good things that are going on and the hopeful paths we're on and trajectories, both good and bad. Uh, and and so I feel that that tone of you know here's where we are. This is, you know, this is not a drill. This is real life stuff that's, you know, could get really ugly and could get even uglier before it gets better. Um, and yet there is a path. Uh, and there are some good signs. I mean, he ta- he quotes or cites this uh, uh, WRI, World Resources Institute study that shows that uh, 49 countries covering a little over a third of global emissions have already seen their carbon output peak. Um, and so that's encouraging. We still have the other two thirds to go, you know. And I think we'll see in the State of Green Business report the uh, data from TrueCost saying that it's, you know, it's actually we're backsliding a little bit on some of these things. So it's not, uh, you know, it's good, but it's not really good. It could be a lot better. But um, you know, we need that optimism. Uh, people working in this field need that optimism they they and and the world in general needs that optimism to know that we got this we can do this if we really you know lean in bear down you know stand up show up all those things um it's all possible so i like james piece james is the uh, editor-in-chief i believe is his title of business green uh sort of our counterpart in, in the uk and great collaborative organization with us. So that was good. And then uh, the other piece I liked is, is or one of the other pieces I liked was by our good friend and editor-at-large, Catherine Winkler. It's called Why I'm Negative on Net Positive. Catherine writes a column called Getting Real. And this really is about getting real. I mean, she's, Catherine was a uh, probably one of the veteran chief sustainability officers. She was at EMC up to the point that it got uh, merged or got acquired by Dell uh, and, and was just in, in the field for a long, long time, uh, engineer by background, and um, just you know, both wonky and able to explain things a, in 
clear, concise, and compelling language. And she talks about this, you know, what does it mean to be net positive? And the answer is, no one really knows, and yet companies are talking about that. What I love is sort of the her talking about how to measure things, right? Uh, measuring outcomes is extraordinarily hard, right? We always talk about what we have to measure, what are the metrics, what do we see, what, what data, data, data. Um, but she makes this great analogy. Would you tell your kids not to be kind, respectful, or polite until they have a suitable survey instrument to be able to prove they're on the upper trend? I mean, I just thought, whoa, yeah? I bet there are some, you know, sometimes I bet there are some parents who, who, who would require that, and they probably uh, run uh, tech companies in the valley here. But um, that's uh, her point is still well taken. It, it is well taken. I mean, and it, I think sometimes people get stuck on, I can't measure it, therefore I, I'm not going to do anything. Well, no, <laughs> um, you got to start doing things, and and maybe sometimes by by trying to artificially measure it, you might you might make things worse. So I I, I mean I just I read this piece and I thought, oh great, uh, one of those again, one of those big like smack in the head kind of get your get your reset button pushed. Um, I I love data. I'm, I've covered tech forever, but this made me realize, yeah. There's just certain things intuitively and instinctively you know are right and that makes sense and that you do want to measure, but you, ha- you have to kind of like measure how, how <laughs> you have to measure what's, whether where the measurements uh, are, are working. So I, I, I don't know. I just, I'm talking in circles now, but it, it was a great piece. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think part of the problem is that companies are talking in circles too when they're they're talking about net positive, but not accounting for everything that they're doing. And it's uh, something that we need to be heeding and understanding as, as we get, because the language does matter. And you and I as journalists, of course, believe that as much as anyone, but it, it really does matter how we frame things and what we're solving for and what we're claiming uh, can really you know, set us on the right or wrong trajectory. Uh, and you know, we hear that from you know, Bill McDonough talks about, you know, Doing less bad is not the same as doing good, or doing the doing the wrong thing more slowly just means you're you know more slowly wrong or something. And and I think it is important that we that we name the goals and name the uh, the outcomes um, and the tactics and the strategies, but name them correctly. So speaking of words that we should be looking at uh, resilience. Um, now we have this piece. Uh, from Rocky Mountain Institute um, saying that it, in 2018, resilience will become the new normal. Um, and this is where I, I smile and, and, and you know, pat myself on the back a little bit, um, or pat us on the back a little bit, because we said that a year ago in the 2017 State of Green Business Report, that one of the trends was, was that resilience becomes a sustainability strategy. And you know, it's it isn't yet. Uh, that was one of the, a lot of these trends that we call the ten trends we 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 name every year. Aren't don't necessarily happen in that year, but they may take two or three or even more years. Uh, but that's one that that I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with because I think that we understand that. You know, the goal isn't just sustainability, which a lot of is a word a lot of people haven't really liked because it just means to stand still and not, uh, you know, not progress. But resilience is about being able to bounce back, to being able to deal with whatever shocks 
come, including climate shock. So my my friend and co-author Mark Puck Mickleby, has a former retired Marine, has a great line that says, "Resilience is being able to take a gut punch and come back swinging." Right. It, the the piece also discusses a financing instrument that we we haven't probably covered as much as as we should. The property assessed clean energy pace, right? The so-called pace instruments. And um, because one of the, you know, when you look at Puerto Rico, right, the big problem there, not one, not the big problem, but one of the biggest problems is there's no money. So how do you rebuild these things? How do you rebuild the grid? Um, How do you ensure that there is resilience? How do you have a backup generator? How do you have power um, when the, you know, when, when the main grid goes out? And the idea that um, by investing in these things, right, as you as you reconstruct, that that part of your um, your taxes would be, you know, the incremental property tax assessment could be part of a way of paying for it, you know, because people don't have the money to, to lay it out. So how do you finance these things over time? Um, how do you encourage a property owner to invest in it, um, you know, if they don't have the money up front? So pace, I think, is something maybe that we should be looking at more closely um, as these communities rebuild and people and, you know, as, as cities around the, the country become more interested in this resilience term. Yes, and, or but, I'm not sure if you saw this, Heather, but um, the pace, uh, you know, this is pace financing is where it removes the upfront cost of energy or water saving improvements by enabling homeowners to uh, pay off the cost of the upgrades through their property taxes, and then as if 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 they move or sell a house, um, then the new it continues with the property tax with the new owner, uh, and so it doesn't mean you know why why invest in in solar and a with a twenty year payback on a house if I'm if I'm only going to be there for four years well now there's a reason to do that, but last month the Trump administration put up a big new hurdle for residential property uh, residential pace financing. Uh, in, in December, HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, said that the Federal Housing Administration would no longer insure mortgages for homes with PACE liens. And this is a big problem because, um, uh, you know, if there's, if the homeowner defaults on the mortgage, where does the PACE loan, is it first or second? And, and, and it, it, gets, it gets legally confusing or could be legally confusing for the, the lender and so uh, one, one way that they mitigated that was by having FHA, the Federal Housing Authority Administration, say, well, we're, we will insure those kinds of mortgages, but now it looks like they may pull back from that, which is, of course, reverses the guidance adopted by, guess who, the Obama administration in 2016. So this new guidance takes effect this month. That maybe it even took effect already uh, on when the clock struck midnight the other night. Um, so that's going to be a problem. It's something else we're going to have to f- face with and maybe figure out how to undo or work around. Yeah, I mean, I think, and uh, clearly also um, with the property tax um, deductions being limited now, that also is a factor, right? Because, <laughs> you know, do you have, when you, if, if you want to invest in your home, and that this, this is one thing I worry about, is investments won't be counted the same way as they were in the past, right? Is it less of an incentive to invest in your home and make it better? Um, so get, again, that's a that is an issue. I I didn't I forgot about that that issue that you just mentioned. Um, but you know the thing that's really particularly distressing about that is that it again puts the 
this sort of inclusion problem back out on the table, right? So it's like, okay, if you don't, if you want to and do this, but you don't quite have the income to have a different kind of mortgage, then you're you're excluded, and that that's just really it sort of puts that issue back out there that the implication that solar investments or energy storage and so forth are only for the the rich people. That's just a very unfortunate meme, if you will, that we have to deal with again. But all this is uh, how do we be, become more resilient? How do we make sure that that people uh, at all levels of income and uh, wealth can afford not just uh, solar panels on the roof, but the efficiency measures uh, that that they need just to get their, their homes insulated and uh, efficient appliances and light bulbs and all those things. All that takes investment. And if you're struggling, you don't have that kind of money. And so uh, we've had some great people on stage talking about those things at our events, uh, like Holmes Hummel, who uh, spoke at Verge last year, and both in Hawaii and uh, in in Santa Clara, thinking about how do you bring these things to Appalachia in in, in the United States, for example, um, and some of the poor red states where there's no support for these technologies or these kinds of investments, and yet they're just as much needed, if not more so, in terms of of not just their resilience when there are storms or, or outages, but also financial resilience, being able to reduce their costs, their monthly uh, energy costs so they can afford food and other important things. More creativity from the financial services sector, right? We need that and from utilities and, and so forth. I'm Bob Langert. I'm editor-at-large at GreenBiz, but I also have a consultancy called Mainstreaming Sustainability. And that's where my passion is for 2018. I really want to see the further leapfrogging of mainstreaming sustainability in businesses, small and large. It's, uh, it's undeniable that sustainability integration is at an amazing level. I, but I still believe we need another really big sea change. Take sustainable food production as an example. 15 years ago, the whole concept of sustainable food was virtually unknown. Today, the food industry is taking it on big time. The big brands and companies get it, but we in the sustainability community, I think, brainwash ourselves that we have reached a tipping point. The fact is that lots of companies are struggling with why and how to do this. In 2018, through my writing and advocacy and my consultancy work, I want to stir a bigger conversation and create a greater critical mass. I want to have many more companies take the big step of embracing sustainability as a business opportunity. Hi, it's Joel again. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll check out Center Stage, our new podcast featuring live interviews from GreenBiz events. You'll find conversations with notables like Paul Hawken, Annie Leonard, Janet Napolitano, and executives from a wide range of companies. Check it out. Go to greenbiz.com slash center stage or wherever you get your podcasts.
It's been three months since Hurricanes Irma and Maria decimated the power generation and transmission systems across Puerto Rico, and one-third of the island is still without power. What's more, the price tag to rebuild the grid could be higher than the U.S. territory can afford. The good news is that several organizations have stepped up to help Puerto Rico, at least in theory, and intrepid developers are assessing strategies that could help. Senior writer Cassandra Sweet has been covering the situation there since the fall, and she spoke with several organizations for the latest on what's possible and what's probable. Hello, Cassandra. Happy New Year. Hi, Heather. Happy New Year to you. (laughs) Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah. So let's set the stage. Uh, What are the latest estimates for what it will take to rebuild the grid in Puerto Rico? The latest estimate is it'll take $17.6 billion dollars. And that's a large amount. However, uh, it's due to the extensive and unprecedented damage from both hurricanes that just uh, felled power lines, substations, power plants. They wrecked solar farms, uh, rooftop solar facilities. Just they just it just did widespread damage. It's it's kind of the biggest. Well, it's the longest power outage uh, on record. Uh, in the United States. So so it'll take a lot of money to fix. So there's a debate, you know, about whether to rebuild what was there, right? Just make do over again or or to rebuild using distributed technologies and and renewable renewable generating resources. So what are the pros and cons of each of those approaches? So that's an interesting question. I think a lot of us who who are looking at renewable energy every day just we just know that it's that the prices have come way down and that there's just uh, growing demand every year and that it's on par with conventional resources. However, the Rocky Mountain Institute uh, recently issued a report where they look into, uh, you know, they, they illustrate how renewables such as wind and solar cost the same as, if not less than, conventional oil and gas-fired power plants on Puerto Rico. But they also found that there were a lot of misconceptions uh, out there kind of among policymakers and government officials and, and news media about what the costs are. Uh, they found that a lot of people think that solar and wind are expensive, uh, which is actually not really the case when you look at where the prices are right now. Um, and, and also microgrids, which are systems that can continue to deliver power even when the power, the larger power grid is down, uh, those prices have come down as well. Uh, so, for example, you could build a microgrid in a remote area of Puerto Rico for between 18 cents and 24 cents a kilowatt hour, which is a lot less than what it would have been several years ago. And that's the retail price of electricity, certainly, uh, you know, in expensive states such as Hawaii, California, even New York and Connecticut. Uh, so, so these are some of the things that they found, and uh, they held a webinar recently where they discussed these issues. Well, so let's get a little bit more into the economics of this, right? So microgrids, like ones that combine solar and battery technologies. Now, how do the economics pencil out on, on, on the various scenarios here? Can you give us a little bit more information? Yeah, so solar and wind power sold in recent transactions in the Caribbean region have gone for about $0.08 cents to $0.15 cents a kilowatt hour. And that compares to operating uh, existing fossil fuel power plants in Puerto Rico. 
And those costs are between nine cents and 28 cents a kilowatt hour. So it's kind of a wide range. It's very similar. And yet uh, some of these older fossil fuel power plants on Puerto Rico could be phased out and replaced, uh, at least in part, by solar and wind power. In this clip, Isaac Tusi at the Rocky Mountain Institute speaks during a recent webinar about the misconceptions that he found among various policymakers, government officials, and news media, and how there appears to be a misunderstanding about the costs and benefits of renewable energy, microgrids, and energy efficiency technologies. We've organized our work in this space around addressing these three common concerns that we see as obstructing a, a pathway to a more resilient, cost-effective, and sustainable energy future for the island. The first is that new energy technologies are not cost-effective. And by new energy technologies, I'm using that term to refer specifically to uh, utility-scale as well as distributed and community-scale renewable energy projects, microgrids, energy storage, demand flexibility, and also energy efficiency. So while all of those are not necessarily new energy technologies, many have been around for, for decades, of course, uh, we're using that term to refer to this collection of technologies that we see as being uh, obstructed by some of these misconceptions. So again, the first misconception that they're not cost effective, the second misconception that they uh, are neither resilient nor reliable and, and don't have a place in a resilient or reliable grid. And then finally, the third misconception that they don't have a role in the short or the long-term rebuilding effort. So stepping into the first one, again, the concern is that renewables or, or these other technologies are not cost-effective. I think the, the, the outcome of, of the charrette, and certainly as we've seen in our other work in the Caribbean as well as in the U.S. mainland, um, that the idea that these technologies are not cost-effective reflects a view of five or even ten years ago. But in fact, that wind and solar in particular have come down a dramatic amount in price over the past decade. Lazard's levelized cost of energy estimates uh, from the past nine years, they show, again, using an international benchmark, but we'll walk into the kind of island-specific context in a minute here, that wind has come down in price by 67% and solar at the utility scale by 86% in the past decade. So these are increasingly cost-effective technologies. In the context of Puerto Rico specifically, the deployed costs and some of the PPA prices available in nearby islands in the Caribbean, when compared against the fossil generation costs associated with the uh, uh, generators on the island of Puerto Rico today, suggests that that um, renewables can play a major role in lowering the cost of power supply on the island. Storage is, has also come down in price quite a bit in the past, especially few years. So the chart here is from uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, showing in 2010 uh, a cost of $1,000 per kilowatt hour of storage capacity from lithium-ion battery packs, and then last year a benchmark price of about 250 dollars a megawatt, uh, dollars a kilowatt hour capacity, so more than a 70% decline in the past seven years. And that price is forecast to decrease through 2030, driven largely by the scale introduced by EV manufacturing and just general economies of scale and battery production. So what does that mean for the power sector? Uh, I'm showing three examples at the bottom of the screen of recent projects deployed in the United States. Uh, where PV has been integrated with 
battery storage. So the first two are from Arizona and Hawaii, where this year we saw a price in Arizona with very good solar resource of less than four and a half cents per kilowatt hour of PV integrated with energy storage. In Hawaii, with a slightly larger uh, battery pack in relation to the PV system size, a, a higher price, but still very competitive with Puerto Rico energy generation costs. And then estimates provided to RMI by a developer of a PV plus battery storage project deployed in Puerto Rico, at again, about that same 10 to 11 cent per kilowatt hour number of PV plus storage. So again, the, the recent price declines in batteries suggest that uh, these, these technologies can increasingly be cost effective for a variety of applications. The second concern that we've heard about resilience and reliability of new energy generation technologies. So what I mean when I say resilience is uh, how quickly and how well an electric system can recover from a widespread outage and, and provide the critical services that people rely on and that sustain an economy when, when disaster strikes, in this case, hurricanes. So the chart here shows the result of pattern energies survey on the island and then our, some of RMI's interviews with other developers on the island. And, and, and the takeaway is that of the utility-scale renewable energy projects in Puerto Rico that were either under construction or operating prior to the hurricanes in 2017, 82% of those are ready to operate. They're not operating yet because, in fact, the grid is damaged to an extent where it can't accept the power. But it's not the power plants themselves. It's the grid that is prohibiting those projects from actually producing and delivering energy. 1% of utility-scale capacity in Puerto Rico is already operating interconnected because the grid in the, near, in the region is not damaged. And then 17% of projects were actually damaged in the storms and are, as of the survey, were still unable to produce power. And again, the, the takeaway here is that the, the generation is not necessarily the problem. So the power plants themselves, either renewable or thermal, it, it's possible and we've seen from experience on other islands that the actual physical resilience of the projects themselves, solar and wind uh, projects themselves, can be increased at a very low capital cost premium to make them more resilient and more resistant to storm damage. But at the, at the end of the day, it's the grid that, that is really the barrier to resilience, not, not the generation assets themselves. Economically speaking, it, it does seem that distributed and renewable resources could make sense, definitely, on the, on the island of Puerto Rico. But here's the bigger question, right? You mentioned that big number at the beginning. So who's going to pay for all this, right? That's a good question, Heather. It's, uh, it's a lot of money. And Puerto Rico has asked the United States, the federal government, for $94.4 billion in aid. And so the amount that they need to fix the grid is about a fifth of the total amount that they need. So, I mean, that's almost $100 billion, which is kind of mind-boggling. However, as we've all seen in television footage and news reports, the, the devastation on the island is, is pretty severe. Uh, recent, currently, the U.S. Congress is considering an aid package of $81 billion dollars uh, but it wouldn't just be for Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico would have to share that with Texas and Florida, which also were impacted by the hurricanes, and also California, you know, where we've had multiple wildfires over the last few months. So it's really not very much money. And the island by itself it doesn't have a lot of buying power. Um, 
Puerto Rico is struggling under $72 billion of debt, which it had before the hurricanes. They've had an economic downturn that's kind of dragged on for several years. And the island's monopoly utility, uh, it's called PREPA, uh, they filed for bankruptcy this past July. They've got $9 billion of debt, and they've had trouble financing new projects. So the big question is, uh, you know, will Puerto Rico get the money it needs to rebuild its infrastructure, including the grid, and bring in more clean energy so that they can get off oil, for example, for generating electricity, and also how they're going to pay for it, how they're going to finance it. So it looks like there's opportunity for outside organizations, um, companies, maybe businesses, investors, and so forth. So anyone listening, <laughs> lots of opportunity there, certainly. Um, so what do you think, what are we looking for next, Cassandra? Like, what's our next mile marker on the progress here? What, what should we expect? Uh, we should expect Congress to come up with maybe some more money or some way to finance uh, different projects on Puerto Rico. Um, there are also some foundations, the, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the Open Society Foundations have all pledged to support a Puerto Rican-led effort to rebuild the island. And, um, and groups such as Rocky Mountain Institute, there's a uh, several utilities, the New York Power Authority, uh, the Energy Department, and uh, several of the national labs are working to figure out the best path forward for Puerto Rico. So I think there's a lot of help there, Heather. I think the, the big question, though, is how it's going to be financed. Okay. And I guess that's the big question mark that will remain the big question mark until we next catch up about this. Thank you, Cassandra, for uh, updating us. I'm, I know you're going to follow this, and, and thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. Thank you, Heather, and Happy New Year. I'm Aaron Kramer, President and CEO of BSR, and as we look ahead to 2018, we're going to be focused on redefining sustainable business. We're living in a time when the world of energy is changing, when new technologies are, are coming at us very, very rapidly, uh, and, uh, and the world of work is changing in fundamental ways. We believe that if we can look at the connection points between all of these things, we can build an economy that actually works for everyone, that allows individuals to thrive, allows us to move to low carbon uh, technology, and to, and to leverage the new technologies in a way that will be uh, accepted by society to take advantage of the potential they offer uh, while making sure that that's done with a human face. Most of you have heard of the Chatham House Rules, a set of guidelines for discussion that encourages participants to share information that may benefit the group without fear that they'll be identified as the source of that knowledge. Fewer of you may be aware that the mission of the Chatham House as an independent policy institute is focused on encouraging the development of a quote, sustainably secure, prosperous, and just world, end quote. Shortly before the year-end holiday, the Institute released a briefing paper that analyzes the potential for the circular economy as a new model for sustainable growth in developing countries. Certainly, the concept is gaining traction in places like Rwanda, Nigeria, South Africa, and India. 
It turns out that many lower income countries are already more circular than their developed world counterparts in the way that they consider reusing goods or handling waste. What role can multinational companies play in the development of viable models for the circular economy outside of their home turf? How will the policies of established economies, especially the European Union and China, affect what's happening in the developing world? And what role will mobile phones and other digital technologies play? Those are several of the themes explored in the Chatham House paper, which is titled A Wider Circle, The Circular Economy in Developing Countries. And those are the thoughts that shaped my questions for one of the report's authors, Johanna Lean. Uh, she is a Chatham House Research Associate for Energy, Environment, and Resources. What follows is an edited version of my conversation with Johanna, starting with her answer to this big question. How optimistic should we be about the potential of the circular economy as a catalyst for sustainable, inclusive growth? So the, I guess the way I'd approach this question is I, I to distinguish a bit between optimism about the idea of the, the sort of model itself and what the potential is, and I guess whether we can be optimistic about whether it would actually take off in developing countries. So I guess to the first one, we really argue in the paper that shifting towards a more circular economy could actually provide an urgent boost to growth and jobs in developing countries. And the idea there is that really by rewiring the economy to make sure that natural resources are used for as long as possible and in the most efficient way possible. So, for example, by, I guess, maximizing reuse or scaling up remanufacturing and recycling activities that developing countries could actually unlock a huge amount of value from secondary materials and waste and actually um, help basically get that value out of challenges that are currently actually undermining development gains. So, for example, around resource scarcity and pollution. And we really do emphasize, as you said earlier, that there are lots of existing activities around sector economy already happening in developing countries. So, for example, in India, you have informal waste pickers who contribute nearly one billion US dollars per year in recovered materials and remanufactured products to the local economy in some cities, but higher value opportunities are currently being missed. Uh, to the second point about whether we should actually be optimistic about it actually taking off, I think that's probably a fair question in that there's been a lot of buzz around the idea of a circular economy, as your listeners will well know, know like not just in Northern Europe, of course, but also in the US. Um, but even in those economies where we might expect it to take off, it's taking a long time for the concept to be scaled up to reality. Um, but there are a number of reasons why we might actually think that, if anything, developing countries could be better placed to adopt circular approaches. So, so for the, in the first instance, the fact that they are in many ways more circular, so many of these activities, sorting and reusing waste, are commonplace in a way that they aren't in Western economies. The fact that these countries are facing maybe the largest challenges from rapid industrialization and urbanization, so huge and growing waste crises, really big problems around congestion and access to food, water and land. So there's, a, there's an urgency around the issue that might be lacking at the moment in developed countries. Then the fact that in some of the maybe newer sectors around e-commerce, for example, or off-grid renewable energy, we're seeing lots of examples of developed countries leading rather than following developed countries. Um, so, for example, the penetration of mobile payments in Kenya um, is higher than in some OECD countries, according to some sources. And finally, the fact that 
developed countries are not already locked into a lot of wasteful and resource intensive infrastructures. There's a huge amount of infrastructure investment coming down the line. And if we get the decisions around how we move forward with that right, then there's a huge potential for for developing countries actually to leapfrog to a more sustainable development model. Um, At the same time, it's important not to be overly optimistic. So any time where we've got um, a model that is very technology and capital intensive, which in the case of the circular economy it is, or where we need a really strong institutional capacity on the part of a government to set regulation and to enforce regulation. These are things that are likely to be more difficult um, to achieve in developing countries. And we also need really careful approaches in terms of how we might manage potential trade-offs between the benefits and the drawbacks of circular approaches. So in the paper, we we really emphasise the fact that while there are potentially more jobs in a circular economy in certain areas, we could also see fewer jobs. So, for example, in informal sector, kind of waste picker jobs, those could be disappearing or around jobs that currently um, exist in resource intensive sectors like in coal and steel, those could be disappearing. So it's about managing these trade-offs. So. I guess some optimism, but not overly optimistic. Do these nations think about, quote, the circular economy, end quote, or do they just think about better models of development? I mean, are, do they care if it's circular <laughs> or not, or is it really just their, um, what they feel to be the most appropriate approach for their, for their communities? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say the latter. It's not really an emphasis on, on things being circular. Resources don't have to move in a circle. It's more about what the outcome is. And the outcome or the intended outcome is to sort of develop and grow and create more jobs, but not not face the challenges that are currently getting in the way of that development and growth. So, you know, we've had a huge amount of of um, in, you know fantastic impacts from growing cities and uh, places where as a result of kind of more resource consumption and more industrialization, you've had um, the poorest areas in the world getting wealthier. At the same time, these are places that are also suffering the most from the environmental impacts from that. So it's trying to find a model that manages to create those benefits and those in- increases in sort of lifestyle and, and uh, quality that the average everyday person experiences in their life without having the risks that might undermine those. Is it important that the that the that there is a strategy at the national level? Like, is that necessary in these in these developing nations? It's it's a question of so it can be important. It's a question of the government structure in a given country, right? And we've seen not if we if we step back from the sort of developing country conversation for a second if we look at just what circular economy has meant in OECD and western economies we've seen very different approaches to how governments have um, responded to circular economy and where in Europe you'll have a very top down approach um, looking at you know having a big circular economy action plan to the US where it's tended to be sort of more bottom up or more coming from corporates or cities for example who are adopting this kind of language so it it really is a case by case basis. But of course, a strong national strategy on sector economy sends really strong signals to investors and strong signals to companies. There's a huge benefit to having metrics or targets set at the government level that other um, that companies within the economy can react to. So it doesn't, it's, I guess what I'm saying is it's not necessary, uh, it's not sufficient, but it could certainly be very helpful. How could the regulations of the of the established economy, economies, like and again, particularly the European Euro- Union and China, affect 
strategies in developing developing nations. So like what's the what's the correlation? What's the the link, if you will, between what we, what they do and what happens, you know, elsewhere. Yeah, this is a really important point. So, a circular, definitely, the circular economy policies adopted by wealthier countries can have a huge impact on the ability of developing countries to shift towards a circular economy. And um, in the paper, we really emphasise that nowhere is this clearer than by looking at the potential impacts on trade. So, I already mentioned that the EU is going through a large process of adopting a major legislative framework on circular economy. Um, the EU Circular Economy Action Plan. And if it is effective, which is a big if, because it's been moving fairly slowly, but if it is effective, you could see a massive uh, reduction in resource consumption and in waste production. And the knock-on impacts on trade would be that you'd see uh, likely see both a reduction in exports of waste from EU to developing countries, but also on imports of raw and processed materials from developing countries um, to EU countries, which would be a huge shock to some economies. So a number of Developing countries really depend on these trade flows for growth and employment outcomes. So this would be a big, this would have a big effect on their own ability to to adopt different development models. At the same time, the shock could also result in them needing to adopt circular economy models. So it doesn't necessarily have to be only a negative one. Um, and with China, this is maybe very pertinent, especially in the next in the coming few weeks, because China has a large say over the direction of circular activities at a global level. It's the world's biggest market for global waste. So it currently imports um, more than 70% of plastic waste and around 37% of paper waste produced globally. But the government is preparing to introduce major restrictions on imported waste materials at the beginning of 2018. And that's already having a big impact on the ability of trade partners to meet recycling targets, but also having a knock-on effect on other developing and emerging economies that are actually destinations for waste. So there's been recent signs that already in the UK, for example, uh, waste exports to other Asian countries have increased dramatically. So exports to Malaysia of waste were tw uh, twice this year what they were in 2016. Um, but I think the, the really important point here is that, as you say, collaboration is important and that a more open approach to trade is actually very much possible and I think should be encouraged. So not only is it great if we can actually take advantage of another country's existing waste management infrastructure rather than building our own. Um, we can also benefit from the economies of scale of processing vast quantities of secondary materials. Um, and basically, the, the really important point is that a circular economy doesn't have to mean a closed world. So the EU and other leading countries such as China can also do much more to work with developing countries and improve international cooperation in support of the circular economy, especially when it comes to trade. You alluded to this earlier, but the role that digital technology can play, how, how important is that? Um, I think it's it's really fundamental. The funny thing people often, a big criticism, I, I feel like one hears all sort of circular economy, uh, I don't know, conferences or, or when everyone talks about it, is this question of whether it's really that novel or new. So, of course, the ideas have been around since the 1970s. So what's different today? I think technology is a huge part of what is different about it today. So um, we've really seen digital technologies making circular approaches practical for the first time ever. So things like digital platforms that might make it easier to, for example, manage product sharing, maybe around a car or a home, 
Um, so that in, in that case, basically increasing the utilization rate of that product and decreasing the number of products needed. Or, for example, in, a, in the US, in a couple of cities, they're trialing sort of digital eBay style kind of marketplaces for waste products and materials. So connecting up firms that might have waste products that might be useful for another firm and things like asset tracking software. So that really allows a firm to track a product and say, you know, a car, for example, that they're managing, when do they need to, uh, first, you know, really repair it when does it need to be upgraded those types of issues these are things that previously where we wouldn't have had the data to actually make those approaches possible where currently it it suddenly is possible and we haven't talked about this at all yet but clearly the um the multinational companies the the uh, many of the financial services companies but also the big manufacturing organizations and consumer products companies have a focus on how can we push the the believer on the sustainable development goals how where where should we be investing our circular economy activities so the the final question i have is you know what can a multinational business do to be part of this opportunity what should they be looking at you know what are the calls to action if you will for a big company that's got a footprint that's worldwide that maybe has manufacturing um, and waste management concerns you know what what should they be doing to hook into this this emerging opportunity? Yeah, so I, I think this is a, a really crucial point. I think a large advantage that the secular economy has over maybe other sustainability concept, concepts that have come before around green growth, for example, is that the private sector actually seems to find it really attractive. So there's a forthcoming survey coming out that really emphasizes this. I think it was conducted by the Boston Consulting Group, and it suggests that 97% of respondents, and this is among private sector stakeholders, believe the circular economy is critical for the future. And so if we think about what multinational businesses are doing already, I think there are a couple key points where this is really important for developing countries. So if, um, for example, here I'm thinking about the the big multinational companies that have already adopted the circular economy language and they're formulating strategies around it, like the Coca-Colas or the Unilevers or the H&Ms, and they should really be thinking about how they take these approaches and make sure that they are implemented all along their supply chains. So that includes where their supply chains are in developing countries. Um, they can also play a really important role in actually seeding circular economy ideas in those countries. So both collaborating with maybe national and local governments to make sure that circular economy thinking is maybe mainstreamed in those governments, make sure that they have the, the right infrastructure, the skills and training they need in place to actually capitalize on circular activities in those countries. And of course, these companies have a huge responsibility to make sure that their products are not causing undue harm. So we already spoke about e-waste, but this is really a prime example um, where companies are already taking action in developing countries. So uh, a group of multinational technology companies, I think, including Dell, HP, Nokia and IBM, are already working together to create better sort of extended producer responsibility systems, take back systems, e-waste processing facilities in Nigeria and South Africa. And finally, of course, if and when developing country governments do develop more formal circular economy strategies, if they choose to, these companies will have a really important role to play in co-developing and supporting these. I'm Andrew Beattie, Managing Director of Obvious Ventures. I have a few top priorities for 2018. First, we're seeking out early stage companies continuing to accelerate our transformation to an all-electric 
mobile world. So that includes, you know, started with our investment in Proterra, continued with our investment in Lilium, the electric vertical takeoff and landing air taxi company. And I think will only grow over time. There are so many different areas that are transitioning from combustion to all electric, and we definitely want to be a part of that. Another big area of focus for us is investing in the reimagination of the construction industry. I think we're in the process, the early stages of seeing massive change taking hold in that industry. Uh, now and in the years ahead, it will be a long, long process of transformation. It's one of the largest and oldest industries in the world and uh, is pretty conservative and resistant to change for very good reasons around safety and owned processes that have been in use for hundreds or thousands of years. And we expect a lot of that to change to become even safer, certainly better for the environment and much more efficient in the process. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll find more about the organization, stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to our other podcast called Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We love to hear from you. And thanks, as always, and Happy New Year to GreenBiz350's director, Stephanie Joyce, and our managing editor, Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, one more time, Happy New Year. I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>